This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 107. Today we welcome R. Scott Clark to discuss Caspar Olivianus and his exposition of the Apostles' Creed. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we thank everyone who helps to make this program possible. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org slash donate. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. This is episode number 107. My name is Camden Busey, and I'm pleased to welcome back Nick Batzig, who is a church planter with the PCA just outside of Savannah, Georgia, in Richmond Hill. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Thanks, Camden. Good to be on. Yeah, we're also very pleased to have with us Scott Clark, who is professor of church history and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Many of you, I'm sure, know him from the Heidel blog, also the Heidel cast now, and of course, Office Hours. And he's the author and editor of several books, and we're very pleased to have him on. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Clark. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, that's the familiar voice of uh, various Westminster Seminary California recordings. Also, as I said, the Office Hours podcast. So we've got an old pro, an old radio guy on with us today. And uh, we're very excited to chat today about a new book, a new translation of a book, I should say, Caspar Livianus's An Exposition of the Apostles' Creed, which is available from Reformation Heritage Books. Uh, it's a new translation by Lyle Birma, and it's got an excellent introduction by Dr. Clark about Olivianus and about this book and uh, the whole historical context. And so we're going to get into this and just discuss this. Now, this book is not something many people are going to be familiar with, at least uh, the lay people and, and people are just generally familiar with Reformed theology. Perhaps we can discuss the series in general and then uh, maybe we can lay a historical foundation and for setting the context and understanding Olivianus in uh, relation to uh, the Reformation. Well, first of all, let me deal with the series. Uh, generally, this series aims to uh, bring into print, make available uh, volumes that uh, are, are fairly called classic Reformed theology. And we, the reason we talk about classic Reformed theology is that uh, there's a whole body of literature from the period of the 16th and 17th centuries to which a lot of people don't have access, either because it's never been translated or it was translated a very long time ago and just hasn't been made available or isn't isn't available outside of, say, microfiche, microfilm, or, or perhaps some uh, professional academic uh, database. So th- there's a great lot of literature from the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, which if people read it and knew it uh, and engaged with it, uh, would probably cause them to think about Reformed theology uh, more clearly and more accurately, I think, than, than they often do. Many people, in my experience, tend to define Reformed theology uh, in a, one of two ways, or maybe in two ways simultaneously. In, uh, I sometimes like to talk about Reformed narcissism. That is, <laughs> I'm, I'm Reformed. I think X, and therefore X is reformed. And you know, we laugh about this, but it's a widespread way of thinking, and I've run into it many times. And so, I think a series like this is a helpful corrective to that way of thinking, and its way of saying no. The definition of what it is to be reformed uh, has existed for a long time and was formed by and is informed by uh, people uh, uh, who who gave us in effect, the basics of Reformed theology long before you. And then Mm. a second, slightly more sophisticated approach to this, where folks tend to start with a a given period, let's say, oh, some people are very fond of certain periods in the 19th century, or perhaps they're very fond of certain, you know, periods in the early 20th century, and they say, well, that's Reformed. And uh, and again, I want to say, well, yes, that's part of the Reformed tradition. It's part of the the stream uh, of things that that make up uh, the Reformed theology, piety, and practice. But there was a beginning, if you will. There was a foundation, and uh, and so what we wanted to do was to get into print texts that uh, illustrate this foundational period of Reformed theology. So we're just getting started. Uh, last year, we published William Ames. 
uh, uh, collection of, of sermons on the Heidelberg Catechism by Ames, uh, sketches of the Christian's catechism. So it's not terribly technical. In fact, it's it's uh, intentionally popular. It was uh, the exposition of the of the Heidelberg Catechism for uh, God's people. Um, although the, these were done, uh, or at least the text was originally done. Uh, in Latin, and so there was there was that aspect, and now the second volume is Olivianus's exposition of the Apostles' Creed, and again these were uh, sermons, uh, possibly lectures, but more likely sermons, mm. uh, expositing the Apostles' Creed. So it's a sort of not fully academic, uh, and yet not fully popular because the the text as we have it. Uh, is in Latin, so which usually suggests an academic audience or at least an educated audience. Certainly. Now, um, who was Olivianus, and what what were his dates, and what was the general context? And I want to point uh, the listener to the book, which has a, a helpful introduction. But could you condense that for us, just so we can uh, have the proper footing in order to discuss this book? Sure. Olivianus is a very significant fellow. He's a transitional figure. Uh, I think uh, it's what Lyle said uh, years ago in his uh, doctoral dissertation, and I think that's right. His theology is sort of transitional from the uh, earliest generation of Reformed theology to the more highly developed versions of Reformed theology that uh, that began to occur in the 17th century. Olivianus is a German. Uh, he uh, uh, was born in Tria, uh, which is a somewhat notable city. It's a place where Athanasius was banished. It's Karl Marx's hometown and, and <laughs> other uh, reasons why Tria is somewhat known, although today in Tria, nobody would, very few people would know much about Olivianus. His German name is Van Oliveg, uh, probably a reference to the, the street on which the family lived, and he, Latined, uh, he Latinized it uh, as Olivianus, and the Germans often refer to him as Olivian. So you'll see, uh, mm. you'll see both ways of referring to him, Caspar Olivian and Caspar Olivianus, uh, probably most well known by the latter. He um, was raised Roman Catholic and uh, attended, uh, was probably educated at home privately as a boy and then went off to a Latin school and so followed that sort of familiar and classical pattern uh, and then uh, found himself in university in, uh, in France where he came into contact with uh, 16th century evangelicals. And I, I, I use that qualifier to distinguish the original sense of evangelical from the modern contemporary sense of anyone who likes Billy Graham or anyone who's had an immediate encounter with the risen Christ. In the, in the 16th century, to say evangelical meant to say someone who identified with Martin Luther's doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and who affirmed the scriptures as the sole uh, no, ultimate norm for faith and uh, and life in the Christian life, he ran and he came into contact with uh, evangelicals, and he was converted to the evangelical cause. And he testified later that the he had been taught in school by the priests a kind of biblical theology, that is a, a story of the history of redemption of types and shadows that came to fulfillment in Christ. But mm. when, when he came into contact with uh, the evangelicals. It all fell into place that, in fact, uh, the Roman system of theology, piety, and practice that he had learned, that that uh, God gives us uh, grace in the sacraments, and it really um, includes us in the sacraments into himself and uh, gives us assisting grace in the sacraments so that we can uh, do our part to cooperate with, with the initial grace and to become sufficiently sanctified so that God can justify us. Uh, you know, you have initial justification in baptism, and then you have ultimately a final justification uh, at the uh, at the judgment, uh, partly on the basis of, of Christ's work, but partly on the basis, uh, ultimately, really on the basis of the the work of the Spirit or the work of Christ in you. That is sanctification. Uh, he turned his back on that entire system of of uh, righteousness with God by grace and cooperation with grace in favor of a system of uh, righteousness before God on the basis of the imputed, reckoned, credited, perfect righteousness of Christ accomplished for him and received through trusting, leaning, uh, resting, receiving uh, Christ in his finished work alone. And uh, he he flourished and uh, in this new uh, found evangelical faith, ended up, uh, uh, he studied law formally and uh, Came home, practiced law for uh, briefly, and then um, uh, went off to uh, uh, seminary 
Uh, he wasn't mm. satisfied practicing law. wasn't something he really wanted to do. He was, you know, as we say, on fire. He was full of enthusiasm mm-hmm. for the evangelical faith, of, uh, for the biblical faith. So he studies in Geneva. He studies uh, a little bit in Zurich. And uh, uh, Beza, in effect, sends him back home. It says, uh, boy, you've got to go back home and preach the gospel. So he goes home, gets a job. Uh, his dad had been on the city council, and so he gets a job teaching school, um, you know, uh, teaching um, essentially Latin grammar and, and uh, logic. So what uh, in classical terms is called grammar, logic, and rhetoric. The, the yeah, trivium. trivium, yeah. And so he's teaching this, but these, uh, uh, not, you know, if I say trivial, that's sort of misleading, but these lectures uh, turn into <laughs> Bible studies, and they turn, and these Bible studies sort of morph into sermons. And so the, the people who are attending this, and the, apparently the audience is growing for this, they go to the city council and they say, listen, we want to hear this, this uh, young man preach. And uh, so they were allowed to use the city church, the city owned a, a, a parish, St. James, I think it was, and uh, the, he had a uh, you know, sun, big, you know, opening service, as it were, and uh, people flock to hear this uh, firebrand uh, evangelical, uh, and uh, he he preaches a, a sermon denouncing uh, papacy, denouncing idolatry. Uh, it wasn't seeker sensitive at all. It's it's uh, you know, uh, sort of hardcore, uh, truly reformed. Uh, <laughs> You know, a sermon, uh, you know, he's preaching the law and he's preaching the gospel, but he's preaching the law in their context and uh, and going after their, you know, their idolatry, the idolatry of the mass and, and so forth. Yeah. Splits the city right down the middle. Uh, and um, he, you know, the, uh, he's campaigning in the city. Uh, there's some politics going on. And uh, all this time, the prince bishop had been away, the elector who was in charge of the of, of that district, if you will, of that electorate, uh, had been away. When he comes back, he says, what in the world is going on? He arrests the leading evangelicals. Olivianus is one of them. And uh, they're, they're thrown in the clink. Um, and uh, it was Frederick III who, had, who, who bails him out. And Frederick mm. bailed him out because um, when they were in university – uh, Olivianus had been hanging out with uh, with one of Frederick's sons and some other fellows, and uh, they went swimming. They had too much to drink. Um, most of the boys, apparently, Olivianus had not. Yeah, and uh, got a little tipsy, as well, these, it were. These are, you know, not, not making excuses, but yes, they, these are college students, and uh, they did what college students uh, do, and uh, they got into a boat. Uh, Olivianus, you know, the story is Olivianus said, you know, I don't think this is a good idea. And uh, their boat tipped over, and uh, Olivianus dove in to save the prince, failed, um, and ended up actually, I think, himself uh, being rescued by the um, uh, by, by the prince's um, sort of manservant, his valet. Uh, valet probably thought he was rescuing the prince, and uh, at, at any rate, Olivianus then uh, gets bailed out by a, I guess, a grateful uh, Frederick III, and that's how he ends up in Heidelberg, where he spent the first uh, phase of his uh, reformed and evangelical ministry from about, to, if I remember correctly, it's been, uh, I'd have to go back and look at my notes, but something like 1560, 61 to uh, 1576. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's that's incredible. I mean, uh, just to hear this story, it, he doesn't sound his life story. It's it sounds uh, similar to some of the other men. Now, he m- sounded like he might have had a more supportive father, but uh, in terms of studying law and uh, then eventually moving on to the ministry, eventually teaching languages and and those sorts of things, uh, it sounds a lot like some of the other reformers. Well, in a lot of ways, he had the experience of a first generation reformer. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, he's – there were evangelicals in Tria when he was there, but he, his experience – and the, one of the things I tried to bring out in my, my book on Olivianus, Casper uh, Olivian and the Substance of the Covenant, was that his uh, experience, even though chronologically it's very much in the second generation or maybe even later, uh, experientially it's – it's very much like the first generation because he's one of the first to stand up in Tria and and preach an unequivocal Protestant message of justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and to teach a clear distinction between law and gospel and to call people uh, away from you know Roman theology, piety, and practice and, and to do so in a, in a really vigorous way and then to suffer 
Um, I, I don't mean to overdraw the you know the extent of his suffering, but he did face opposition and even some persecution uh, while you know while doing this, and uh, and so I think all of that really shaped his message. Um, in, in many ways, I think he really identified with the first generation uh, Protestants, and there's ev- there's uh, evidence from his own work that, in fact, he he very strongly identified with, for example, Luther, among others. Hmm. You know, it's evident when you read this um, work on the Apostles' Creed that this was a man who had an extraordinary grasp on Scripture. I read this actually on a, p- a plane flight from Grand Rapids this week. It's you know, it's a short work, as you know. And I'm reading this, and he is, just by quoting Scripture everywhere the way he does, is showing the depth of biblical knowledge that he had. Um, I often think, looking back at, at these men, you know, the advantages we have, all the theology we have, all the teachers we have, all the resources we have, and yet to see that, you know, the knowledge of Scripture that a, a man like Olivianus had at this point um, is just remarkable. It really is um, remarkable how well they knew God's Word. So, I, did, I wanted to say that even before getting into, you know, our discussion on the Apostles' Creed, just how impressed I was with his, his defense of theology from the Scripture itself. One of the things we, I think we should remember is that uh, the ability to have, a, you know, copy of Holy Scripture was relatively uh, new. Right. Uh, for many people, Scripture would have been a book, at best, chained to a pulpit in a church which someone else opened and someone and from which best case scenario now from which someone else was reading in a language you couldn't understand right mm-hmm. that that was the way that most people related to scripture and and now you know you know he, uh, he's of e- sufficient economic means and we we shouldn't forget that and that uh, it took a certain uh, amount of uh, of financial substance to be able to go off and do the things that he did. That is to get, you know, have a, a private education, you know, homeschooling is, is nothing new, and then to get a classical education. Again, classical education is nothing new. And then to, <laughs> and then to go to university uh, and to do all those things, um, you know, study to be a lawyer and so forth. So, you know, he's, you know, in, in traditional medieval society, there were three classes of people. Uh, there were the priests who prayed for society, priests and monks. Uh, there were the knights and the nobility who ruled society. And there were the serfs who worked for society. And uh, things are becoming a little more fluid in the 16th century. But, uh, you know, in the providence of God, Olivianus had the means and was able to uh, you know, get the kind of education he needed so that he would be able to read Scripture not only uh, in German and uh, and presumably, uh, I, I you know one thinks he must have learned a little French, but uh, also in Latin, which is the the language in which he did most of his writing. Uh, but uh, also he learned at least Greek. There's not a lot of Hebrew in his uh, uh, work in Scripture, but there's a lot of Greek, and so it's it seems as if he had at least some grasp of the original languages. And, and as you say, he. Uh, he certainly gave himself over to the reading of Scripture, uh, the preaching of Scripture. You know, these fellows preached all the time, and Olivianus was not uh, an exception. And uh, they were teaching uh, all the time. Yeah, the as, you, scripture. as you as you say, his uh, the Greek comes out even in this little this little book on the Apostles' Creed. He'll he'll defend a point he's making with the the use of some certain word, and I thought that was interesting because it's not really a scholastic treatise per se. And yet, you can tell he's really governed by the original language of the text. Yeah, he he really wants people to know Scripture, and he wants them to understand it. Uh, you know, the dichotomy that many of us have experienced in in modern evangelicalism is, you know, uh, it, you know, you might have been raised in a fundamentalist church where people knew a lot of Scripture, but where they they didn't understand it. And Olympianus right. uh, is talking to people who a don't know Scripture, really. Um, The Reformation, for example, came to the Palatinate not very much long, not not very long before the the Calvinists were called there by Frederick III. And so not only are they having to communicate to 
to people who don't really know Scripture, uh, the the basics of the biblical story, but they're having to, at the, at the same time, explain to them what Scripture means. What What is the big story of Scripture? How does it hang together? And of course, the, the story is that it all focuses on Christ. Uh, you might even say that uh, Christ is the center of uh, of the story of Scripture, and uh, and that uh, and he's at the center of the story that they want to that that they they being the ministers in the Palatinate want to tell the people, but they also want to see how the faith hangs together as a series or a complex of doctrines at the same time. So it's a story focusing on Christ, but it, it entails a series of doctrines or a whole complex of doctrines that also focus on Christ. Mm. Now, you did your dissertation on um, Olivianus's understanding of the covenant with, I guess, a focus on the duplex beneficium or the duplex gratia, is that correct? The, the that, justification it, and sanctification in relationship to Christ? Well, that yeah, that's where the the thesis ends up. But the the book is really a study of, uh, I, I guess, of the whole of Olivianus's theology. I, what I wanted to do was to build on the work that Lyle Bierma had done. Uh, Lyle focused on, uh, in a sense, the the technical aspects of Olivianus's covenant theology as a sort of transitional covenant theology between the very earliest forms, uh, as it existed in the fifteen twenties, thirties. 40s, 50s, and so forth, and uh, and then the the later, more highly developed forms of covenant theology that would come uh, to expression from 1590 uh, into the 1620s, and then finally into the 1650s, 60s, and 70s. So Olivianus is right in the middle of that transitional, that sort of hundred-year transitional period, where where at the at the end of which you have a, a highly developed uh, covenant theology. And I wanted to get underneath the hood, if you will, and say. What was the doctrinal effect of his covenant theology? And to show that for, and what I, to show what I found in reading him, and that is uh, that he taught what he taught in his covenant theology because of what he confessed uh, and understood in his confessional and systematic theology. And so for Olivianus, there's no dichotomy. It's not like he has a, a biblical theology over here and a confessional or systematic theology, and there's some distinction between those two, but we'll lump them together for the moment. Uh, there's no dichotomy between these two ways of doing theology. They're just different ways of articulating uh, the same truth in Scripture. Right. I was actually fascinated by the fact that as you read through this short work on the creed, that he everywhere alludes to the covenant and the idea of God's working with his people in covenant and thinking about the time frame, as you've just pointed out, and realizing, and I know Peter Loback and others have tried to show this prominence to the covenant in Calvin and others in Luther, but it, it's not as prominent in some of the magisterial reformers and some of the earlier reformers, but it is explicit in this this little work is is really all I've read outside of you know um, confessions and whatnot that Olivianus was was um, instrumental in writing. So I thought that was really interesting that he was so governed by the idea of covenant theology and God's working all things in covenant with His people even at this early stage um, in the 16th century. He began his uh, work on covenant theology in an earlier work, uh, which was published in 1567, uh, which Lyle Bierma has also translated. It's called Firm Foundation. It's, I don't think it's in print now. Last time I, I checked, uh, the only copy that I saw for sale used on the web was something like $800. <laughs> So I know it's, but you can get it through interlibrary loan, and I I, uh, I I hope it comes back into print someday because it's a valuable piece of work. And you'll see him working with a lot of very basic covenantal themes uh, in in that uh, in that book as well. For example, uh, you see a, a basic doctrine of what we would today call the covenant of works, and a, a very clear articulation of what uh, came to be known later as the pactum salutis. Mm-hmm. Or or the covenant of redemption before history between the Father and the Son, and implicitly the Holy Spirit, and then obviously a lot of attention to the covenant of grace. This volume, uh, now that that was a more catechetical work, a book of questions and answers, and this is a more straightforward, uh, if you will, exposition of some of the same themes. One of the things that distinguishes this book from the earlier 
is that he wants to try to synthesize two great themes in Scripture, and that is kingdom and covenant, uh, which is yes. very interesting. And, and for Olivianus, uh, he, he wants, and he also has a very high doctrine of the church, uh, which mm. in his theology, these, these things were all tied together. Uh, the kingdom of God, as he thinks about it, and I think this is very interesting, particularly for contemporary discussions about, you know, where is the kingdom and what is the kingdom and how should we speak about the kingdom? Well, when Olivianus talks about the kingdom, he thinks of the visible institutional church. Now, I'm not saying that if, were he alive today, exactly where he would fall in all of these discussions. You know, you know I think it's anachronistic to ask him, well, you know, Casper, what do you think about the Neo-Kyperians? I'm not... I'm not <laughs> putting it that way. But I do think it is interesting that when he thinks of the kingdom, he thinks of the visible uh, institutional church, because he said the, the church is the place where the, the, um, the new covenant, he says, is administered. It's the place where the signs and the seals of the, uh, of the kingdom are administered. You know, fundamentally, for all to be honest, the kingdom is an eschatological entity. Uh, he says at one place, it is certain uh, there are two spiritual kingdoms, even in this world, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Every person necessarily belongs to uh, one or the other in this life. So, for Livianus, then, the, the kingdom of Christ is an eschatological kingdom to which, nevertheless, believers and their children, which is a big uh, a big uh, theme for him because he's very conscious of the Anabaptist rejection of infant baptism, right? So believers and their children, unless he says, when they are grown through unbelief, they reject the benefit that is offered in the covenant. So you, you have this strong sense then of, of Livianus that there's an, uh, the kingdom is an eschatological kingdom, but it, it has also manifested in time, in history, and in a place, and that, that place uh, is the church. And so the church is the manifestation uh, of the kingdom of God, and it's the place where the covenant is administered uh, between Christ and his people. And, and so what you have there is a strong emphasis and commitment to not only the, the substance of the covenant, that is that, uh, you know, as he says in, uh, in his uh, largest book on covenant theology, on the substance of the covenant of grace between God and the elect, not only do you have the substance of the covenant, that is justification and sanctification, which is uh, which are received by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But you have a real administration of that covenant uh, under, if you will, or, or as part of the sphere of the kingdom of God, all of which is comprehended, or, or at least uh, manifested, maybe that's a better word, in the visible institutional church. And so you have all three of these themes in Olivion uh, which complement uh, one another. Mm. Now that's that brings me to an interesting uh, discussion point. I think in terms of the visible church. Now speaking of the church more broadly, I wanted to ask you about uh, the nature and the role of creeds and confessions in general. Obviously, you've written "Recovering the Reformed Confession," which many of our listeners are very familiar with. In fact, you can listen to a discussion on it back in Christ the Center episode twenty-seven, which I'll put in the show notes. But what was Olivian's view of creeds and confessions. Why did he exposit the Apostles' Creed? And uh, then a second follow-up, which we can get into, is more or less how he viewed the Reformed community in relation to the larger and broader Christian church. But what, what were Olivian's views on creeds and confession to start with? Olivianus was part of the Protestant Reformation and the Reformed wing of that Reformation, and all of those guys assumed that uh, the faith is something not only that I hold uh, personally and privately, but it's something that I confess uh, publicly with the visible institutional church. And and so he took it from Scripture that the faith is something that is uh, confessed and, and that we're commanded uh, to confess and that we want to confess and ought to confess. And so uh, th these are assumptions with which he works and uh, the sort of the framework within which uh, he thinks about the faith. And, and he understands and understood that the faith is not something that we have created. It's something that 
has been transmitted to us and that we receive. We didn't baptize ourselves. We were baptized uh, by someone else, and God in his grace uh, brought that uh, the promises made to us in baptism uh, to fruition, uh, granting us the grace of, of new life and faith and, and union with Christ and so forth. So, uh, you know, the, the faith is just naturally something that needs to be confessed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are these existing documents, you know, as a Livianus comes to Protestant uh, convictions in the in the uh, mid to late 1550s, uh, the, you know, Augsburg Confession is, uh, you know, 20 years old. And there are a number of Reformed confessions that were equally, you know, uh, mature, if you will. And, uh, you know, Calvin has already done, uh, you know, uh, two catechisms. And it won't be long before the uh, French Confession is published, and then the Belgian Confession is published in 1561. And so the, the whole system of churchly confessions of faith and uh, catechisms, books of questions and answers for transmitting that faith uh, either to children or to or, or to the unlearned, or and really and to students. You know, those would be the three audiences. Um, you know, into congregations where they were explained, for example, in the afternoon or evening uh, service or the second service. You know, this is the world in which he lives. That uh, you know, there's no for Olivianus, there's no tension between scripture and confession, uh, because the faith wants to be confessed. The the faith tells us to confess it, and so we do. And then, of course, what we're confessing is what we understand uh, scripture to teach. Um, so there, you know, he, he doesn't live in a world where. Uh, it's just uh, I and my Bible. However, he's yeah. aware of that world, and, and I think that's very important. You know, we sometimes might be tempted to think that uh, you know, biblicism, I and my Bible alone, uh, is a new phenomenon, and it's not at all a new phenomenon. It, it existed uh, in a very significant way in the 16th century in a movement which is known as Anabaptism. A lot of people might be tempted to think that the Anabaptist movement was just another wing of the Reformation, and sometimes it's described that way by scholars. Uh, I, I think on historical grounds, there are good reasons not to think that way, and certainly, uh, wh- whatever the, the case, uh, the uh, the Reformed Reformers and the Lutheran Reformers did not see the Anabaptists as fellow Reformers who had gone maybe just slightly too far. They saw them as a, a fundamentally different group, and they were, they were described uh, typically as uh, fanatics, uh, as um, yeah, separatists, in a sense, they do rejecting the, uh, the cultural standards and, the, and those sorts of things, setting themselves off from society. Well, exactly, and setting themselves off from the historic Christian faith. Right. And one one way in which they did that was to say, I you know I don't need uh, to to paraphrase uh, a line that I can't remember if it was ever spoken in the movie or not, but you know, catechism, catechism. I don't need no stinking catechism. <laughs> uh, I think. Uh, I, don't, I can never remember if that, if, you know. I think I, I, it was from uh, Prince's Bride, maybe. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm thinking of, Not that one. That's, tre- <laughs> blazing tre- Saddles. Yeah, no, blazing Saddles, Sierra. that's what it was. That's what it was. <laughs> no, it's Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Okay. Botches? Uh, oh, yeah. We oh, don't yeah. No stinking, no stinking botches. Well, anyway. <laughs> We're all wrong here, except Dr. Clark, of course. <laughs> The Anabaptists said, you know, we don't need human documents. In fact, we don't even really need the preaching of the word. All I need is my personal, immediate encounter with the risen Christ. And and with that, I can lever all other authorities, claims, interpretations. You know, I am the sovereign master of 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 the faith, really, and uh, arbiter of the faith. And that's why in the Anabaptist movement, you had, uh, you know, not just one or two or three or four varieties of Anabaptism, but almost as many varieties as there were Anabaptists. And so Olivianus was very conscious of that. And uh, and the, all of those guys really were conscious of a strong distinction between that sort of radical, individualistic, democratic, you know, in the lowercase d, egalitarian uh, uh, form of Christianity, which is very much similar to what we see today in contemporary evangelicalism. Anybody who really wants to understand, I think, contemporary evangelicalism needs to get to know uh, 16th century Anabaptism, because that's really, in many ways, what it has uh, become. And so Mm -hmm. over against that, Olivianus is, uh, you know, wanting to start with Scripture, but he's wanting to read Scripture with the church. 
Now, how did he see the relationship to Rome then? If they would confess this as well, how did he understand it, and how was his exposition different? And did that set the Reformed tradition, at least in Livianus's eyes, apart from Rome and where Rome was headed? Sure. It, I mean, one of the things that the, the Protestants and Livianus among them uh, wanted to say is, listen, Rome claims to be the historic Christian church, but in fact, Rome is not. And uh, he, he's he's very uh, adamant about the corruption of the um, of the medieval church and of the of the Tridentine uh, church, you know, in the 16th century, as as uh, Rome is responding to the Reformation in the Council of Trent over a, over a period of a couple of decades. Well, uh, he on the other hand, he was appreciative of you know the training he had received by uh, you know at, at the hands of priests and and others. Um, in, in the scriptures, but he said that fundamentally they didn't understand the the real message uh, of the scriptures. So on the one hand, he had received some useful training, you know, essentially being taught to read the scripture in terms of types and shadows. You know, the uh, the typology of the in broad terms the Old Testament um, and being fulfilled uh, in Christ. So he was appreciative of that, but he's fundamentally critical of what he regards as a as a uh, Roman departure from the true not only biblical faith but the true historic faith. Uh, Olivianus doesn't write a great deal about the history of the church. He makes allusions, and he mentions things, but I think one of the functions of of uh, expositing, you know, uh, three times now the Apostles' Creed, not not you know leaving aside the Heidelberg Catechism and his relations, uh, he exposited the creed in in firm foundation. He exposited the creed in this uh, exposition uh, from fifteen seventy six, and then. Uh, in the substance of the covenant of grace in 1585, he also exposited the creed. So one of the messages of that is to say, listen, the faith that we're confessing in the Reformation is not a new faith. And he, he makes that point over and over again. He says, we are confessing the ancient faith. What we're doing is purifying it of medieval Roman Tridentine corruptions. Mm. Now, not to get us too far a field, but I think this might be an appropriate time to ask the question. Speaking of medieval theology and some of the changes and additions that uh, Christianity underwent, what were Olivianus's views of scholasticism? You mentioned his familiarity with with Latin and classical education. Was he a scholastic? Was he interested in that? Uh, what, what was his What were his views of that method? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because. People don't often think of Olivianus as a, a scholastic theologian. And in fact, some scholars have used him as a sort of foil over against scholastic theology. They've, they've sort of set him up as the, you know, the pastoral, even Calvin-esque a theologian over against you know, the, the sort of arid, dry, orthodox <laughs> scholastics. And that's the way the story often gets told. Moltmann does that. Bart uh, does that. Uh, sometimes people appeal to the fact that you know, Olivianus was influenced in his pedagogical method by Peter Ramus, and they like to set the Ramists over against the scholastics, all of which I think is complete nonsense. Uh, and the reason I, I think it's—and I, I know that's strong language— but I, I use it advisedly uh, because, A, it just doesn't correspond with you know, what we know about Ramus himself and the effect of what he did, uh, you know, dividing things into twos. I mean, honestly, there are conferences on Peter Ramus. I, I was very tempted recently to, to send a proposal to a conference on Peter Ramus and to go give a paper to say uh, Peter Ramus is completely overestimated uh, he he didn't do anything. All he did was divide things into two. He <laughs> distracted fifteen-year-olds, somewhat interested in the in the otherwise dry stuff he was teaching them about grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Uh, he certainly, you know, he certainly branded himself as a theological revolutionary or a, a logical, methodological, pedagogical revolutionary. But he wasn't anything of the sort because the substance of everything that that Ramus taught on uh, particularly logic was right out of Aristotle. He didn't have a, a new uh, system of logic at all. So, right. all that's to say that Olivianus was, uh, you know, influenced by this, and so so was Ames, and and so were others. And then there were critics, obviously Beza and Ursinus and others, who were not at all sympathetic to to Ramus. But this is really just a pedagogical debate. So within that framework, and within the framework of uh, of sort of classical education, yes, I think Olivianus can be called a kind of scholastic. 
But what happened toward the end of the 16th century is that uh, the division that had existed in earlier centuries between the uh, the scholastics, which is really just code among the uh, humanists for the theology faculty. And so I like to tell the students what you really had in the late Middle Ages and, and into the Renaissance was a fight between two university faculties. Uh, you had a fight between the theology department, the Bible department, if you will, you know, it's your Christian college, and your English department. Obviously, those are grossly anachronistic, but it helps people understand what's happening. You, you know, the lit faculty, the arts faculty versus the, the theology faculty. And uh, the humanism is really about the, the ascendancy, if you will, of the arts faculty over against the, the uh, theology faculty. And in the, towards the end of the 16th century, uh, the fight had been going on so long that you had, um, and here I, I take a lot of this from Erica Rummel and, and others who have written on this, you, you have... Um, a fight that's been going on so long that uh, the uh, Bible department or the theology faculty are writing, you know, poetry to show that they have a soul, and the uh, the English department is writing syllogisms to show that they can think clearly. <laughs> you have a kind of uh, synthesis then at the end of the 16th century between the humanists and the scholastics, and Olivianus is an interesting. Uh, example of the kind of synthesis. So he, he's certainly trained in in the disciplines that we think of, you know, as humanism. But he's also uh, identifying with the orthodoxy and the precision, the theological precision uh, that that we normally think of as associated with with scholasticism. You know, his method isn't, for example, like Thomas's or even like Ursinus's in his exposition of the Heidelberg Catechism, the, the Quaestio method, where you state a question, uh, give a series of uh, objections, you know, a thesis, a series of objections, and then and then responses. It doesn't have that f- sort of formal structure. Uh, it's more like Calvin's in that sense. It's more uh, discursive, where you, you have a topic and uh, you sort of uh, explain it at some length, almost in the way that you would uh, in a lecture. But if you look at the, at the a- actual substance of what Olivianus says and don't just focus on the, the form, it's the same stuff, really, that one sees in the scholastic or the early Orthodox theologians of the same period and, and a little later. Mm. Mm, that's helpful. And uh, it's unfortunate scholasticism has gotten such a bad name, but in the last uh, decade or so, it's been rehabilitated. <laughs> well, I mean, really, since 1978, when, yeah, that's when true. Richard Muller began yeah. to uh, rewrite the story. And I think today, almost everyone, even people who haven't actually read Muller, recognize that the, the story or, or the, the, the um, uh, best scholarship now leads us in another direction. And so what you see, for example, is in a lot of volumes, people saying, you know, for example, even in Philip Benedict's otherwise fine volume, he has a little section in there where, where he sort of nods the head to Muller and says, you know, of course, we all know this is where the state of the discussion is. And then he goes on to write as if Muller had never said anything because it doesn't look as if he's actually paid attention to what Muller and all these other scholars have written. But we know now that a lot of what was written in the 20th century and even before about Reformed Orthodoxy and scholasticism really had almost no basis in primary sources, in other words, in what actually happened. Uh, unfortunately, the, the story that you know, the scholastics came and mugged Calvin and beat him and left him to die in an alley, you know, this is what they often imply about Theodore Beza. Um, you know, that story is still widely uh, believed. Uh, it's still being repeated in schools. Um, it's still being repeated in, in some books. But uh, but if one simply takes the time to read the primary sources, which is gets us back to the one of the purposes of this series, is to put people into uh, direct contact with these, you know, scholastic, orthodox, uh, original sources of the Reformed tradition. If they'll, if they'll read these primary sources, they will see for themselves that uh, much of what has been said about it just has no basis in, uh, uh, in the texts themselves. Mm. Now, speaking uh, more specifically about some of the, the lines and, and uh, text of the Apostles' Creed, um, how— in in some of these phrases, uh, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, etc. How does Olivianus's covenant theology come out? Do you have any specific examples uh, that we can point to in terms of his unique reformed exposition of this creed, as opposed to something Rome might say? Oh my! Well, that's a good question. I mean, he 
he certainly wants to to give a, a Protestant account of the faith, but there is um, a genuine Catholicity in his exposition of the faith. And one of the things I've tried to point out over the years about Olivianus's theology is that, yes, he's a covenant uh, theologian. Yes, he's a biblical theologian, uh, but he's also a Trinitarian theologian. So, uh-huh. Rather than focus on on what distinguishes him at first, we ought to note what unites him with the broader Christian tradition. Uh, Olivianus's uh, theology is profoundly uh, Trinitarian, and and I, I, when I began reading Olivianus, it really wasn't what I was looking for. It wasn't what I expected to find, and so it took me a while to see it. And uh, but but I, he kept talking about things. And answering questions I wasn't asking, and uh, that's always a bad sign <laughs> when you're a scholar. You, you should be paying attention to the text and noticing the the questions that he's asking and he's answering, rather than asking him to answer the questions that you're asking. Uh, and so, as I slowly began to you know make its way through my thick skull, uh, I, I began to look into this phenomenon of Trinitarian theology in the 16th century. I looked at Philip Buton's uh, fine work, which then pushed me back to Warfield. Uh, who did a magnificent essay on uh, Calvin's Trinitarianism, which is really, I think, a, a fundamental, foundational piece of work that that uh, everyone should read. Of course, I think that about almost everything uh, Warfield uh, wrote. But at any rate, uh, th- this was a particularly fine uh, piece. And uh, what he saw in Calvin, I also saw, I think, in a, in a smaller way in, uh, in Olivianus. At the same time, uh, as he is a Trinitarian, um, he also is a covenantal theologian, and so he begins to I- implicitly and in some ways explicitly synthesize his covenant theology with his Trinitarianism. So you get this uh, out of that this doctrine of uh, a pre-temporal covenant between the Father and the Son. Now he yeah. doesn't use the term pactum salutis, but as he reads Scripture, he sees uh, uh, references and allusions to. The, uh, a biblical doctrine that, you know, from eternity, the Father and the Son had entered into uh, an agreement whereby the Son would obey on behalf of of uh, the elect, and the Father would give an elect people uh, to the Son, uh, that the uh, Son would enter into history, that he would obey on their behalf and uh, and be their Redeemer and that the Father would give these people to him uh, on condition of his uh, successful uh, uh, probation, if you will, passing, passing this test. And that, uh, so as, as Olivianus you know, reads and interprets the life of Christ, he does so with this understanding that Jesus came into human history. God the Son came into human history, became incarnate, uh, Jesus uh, the Messiah, and uh, he's acting... Uh, in obedience to a covenant with the Father. At the same time, he's acting as the federal head of all humanity. So he's not uh, making salvation possible for those who do uh, either what lies within them in the more Pelagianizing form of medieval theology or uh, making salvation possible for those who cooperate sufficiently with grace unto sufficient sanctification. He's accomplishing redemption for his people and uh, and mediating uh, salvation to those people for whom he came, uh, in whose place he is obeying, and uh, to whom all his obedience, all his obedience, uh, to use the the expression that was debated at the Westminster Assembly, you know, is his whole obedience or his perfect obedience. That is his active and passive obedience. All of that will be imputed uh, to uh, the believer. So it will be as if he had done. Everything uh, that is, he, the believer, uh, you know, will be reckoned as having done everything that Jesus did in his place. And so there you see, you know, the themes not only of the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis, but, uh, you know, implicitly a covenant of works before history and, uh, you know, a federal relationship between the first Adam and the second Adam. And so really the main lines of covenant, uh, you know, what we think of as Reformed covenant theology. They're all present, uh, and he's sort of working with these themes all the time in the various headings of the Apostles' Creed. Mm. Now, uh, diving down, that's very helpful, but diving down uh, into one specific, um, I've been involved in, in churches in the past that weren't uh, weren't reformed, We have, and uh, still 
embraced the Apostles' Creed and whatnot, but they would change one part. And this is <laughs> where it always gets dangerous when you decide you're going to cut stuff out or change things. And this is the, the little phrase, he descended into hell. And I was wondering if you could address that and speak of its importance, speak about what Olivianus, uh, how he exposited that phrase and maybe some of the other reformers, and uh, what is the significance of it and what happens to the creed if we take it out? Well, there, there are a couple of horizons here. First is the original historical horizon of the Apostles' Creed. Originally, uh, as I understand the history, uh, there were two synonymous phrases, uh, buried, sepultus, and descended, he descended, uh, ad infernos or ad inferna. And these two phrases were used uh, interchangeably simply as ways of referring to the, the burial of Christ. But as... Uh, as time progressed through the patristic period and the, the doctrine of uh, the intermediate state became more uh, developed in some ways, I think in, a, in an unhappy way, uh, the, uh, the church began to use them uh, as sequentially and not as, as synonyms. So you, you begin to get uh, a, a doctrine of, uh, of purgatory, and, uh, and so you begin— to have a reading of First Peter where Jesus goes to the place uh, of the dead and so forth. So he's not simply uh, – right. so the, the biblical text gets divorced from the context of, of Christ going, as Peter says, by the Holy Spirit and testifying to Noah in, in redemptive history, right? And now you have Jesus going to the place of the dead and so forth. So now instead of having uh, an interchangeable expression, you have a sequential uh, expression to accommodate this this notion of, of uh, this developing notion of purgatory, which is the form in which uh, the creed uh, uh, ends up by the late sixth uh, century. So this is the received form of the creed that Olivianus knows, and Calvin had given, uh, I guess, a, a somewhat metaphorical or figurative exposition mm-hmm. of that uh, uh, doctrine descended into hell. And, and that's the view that uh, is taken up in the Heidelberg Catechism, and that's the view that Olivianus takes up, uh, which he exposits. And so he says uh, that uh, there is no doubt, quoting here, that uh, the descent of Christ into hell is the lowest and most extreme degree of his humiliation by which he humbled himself uh, for us. And again, you see that you know that Luther-esque, that Calvin-esque a way of talking, you know, pro nobis, always, you know, Christ acting as as the federal head of his of his redeemed for us. Indeed, emptied himself completely. Now, this is not a, a canonic uh, theology where no, he no, no. Right. deity. Uh, we should. He continues. We should now look at what kind of humiliation this is by examining several meanings of the descent uh, into hell. And so he he explores a variety of meanings. Uh, hell, he's, he's conscious that hell can mean grave, and it can be translated to place of the damned, and third, it can mean extreme anguish, and fourth, uh, taken for the condition uh, in burial and what follows burial, uh, that state of complete disgrace. So he's intelligent about the various options and goes on, in effect, uh, to refer the, the uh, uh, descended, the, he descended into hell, or descensus, sometimes people say, as referring to his entire suffering, not only in his body, uh, but also and even especially in his soul, experienced, uh, you know, where he experienced a horrible uh, anguish, which Peter calls the pains of death. And so uh, he takes the sort of uh, metaphorical or figurative approach to this question, which by the time he published this, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, had been in print, uh, you know, for for, uh, more than a decade. And so uh, there was a fairly established view in the Palatinate. And, of course, he himself lectured to Calvin's institutes uh, every year in the seminary uh, in, uh, in Heidelberg. And so he was you know, intimately familiar because he had made his own uh, edition of the institutes, a sort of synopsis, shortened some discussions, omitted some discussions, so that he could lecture through the institutes uh, each year in the seminary. Mm, that's helpful. I mean, uh, and I want to point the listener to this because this is a confusing can be a confusing thing for many, especially with the addition of, of different views of the intermediate state and doctrines of purgatory and alternate readings of 1 Peter. <laughs> and yeah. This whole idea of descending into hell can be confusing, uh, but I, I like Olivianus' treatment here, and I, I would recommend people to take a look at this. 
Uh, but that's just one little tidbit, uh, one little section of this overall book. It's extremely helpful. And uh, we're so glad that Reformation Heritage is picking this up and putting this out and that you've edited this series and that uh, Lyle Birma as well has translated it. So thank you so much for the service um, and thanks for helping to bring these to light. I am. I'm happy to do it and I'm happy to talk about it. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Now, um, just in our remaining few minutes, uh, could you just share with us a little bit of what's going on with the, with the Heidel blog and with uh, office hours, et cetera? I'm sure many many people that listen to us are also listening to uh, to your podcast. But do you have any upcoming news with the seminary or the podcast? Anything conferences, books, uh, publications? Anything to mention? Well, uh, you know that's a good question, and I, I <laughs> it's all on the web. <laughs> I wasn't really prepared to answer. It, well, but sorry. I'll, no, that's all right. I'll do my best. Uh, we are, the uh, original plan for office hours was to do it once a month. Uh, the reception was frankly, a little stronger than we expected. And so we've ended up doing now essentially two a month. And uh, so we have a whole series of office hours programs, as they say, in the business, in the can, ready to go. Right. On the hard drive would be the, doesn't sound quite as as uh, romantic as to say. In, in, anyway, uh, <laughs> so so th- those are forthcoming. We have uh, a really wonderful interview uh, with Daryl Hart forthcoming. And I, 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 teasing because I don't even know that we've decided when that will air. Uh, I have an interview with Terry Johnson coming up. We also have uh, this summer, the theme is going to be a series of interviews with alumni who are serving Christ in various parts of the world. We've had, uh, we have alumni on campus all the time who come and talk. And uh, so we sort of get caught up. And so I've had a chance to sit down with some of them and talk to them about their work in, in uh, Turkey, in uh, all, all over uh, Asia, the Philippines, um, and then also, um, uh, we've got uh, an, another the, who who escapes me just now. Oh, oh, yes. Well, we have a we have a graduate uh, in Israel uh, who participated. Uh, actually, who who did the first modern translation of the Heidelberg Catechism into Hebrew. He's an elder yeah. in a Jewish Messianic congregation or in a Reformed congregation uh, in Israel, and uh, and he's helping to sponsor. Uh, a small reformed movement. He's a former Israeli military officer, and uh, I had a chance to sit down with him. And so those three interviews uh, will will uh, air this summer. I had a chance to sit down uh, earlier this year, or, or I guess uh, in the fall of 2009, and talk with uh, Cornelius Ventil's uh, uncle and to get some uh, sort of family stories and and uh, personal background on uh, Cornelius Ventil, and that and that will air I think this summer as well. Huh. Uh, so we've got a, a variety of things coming up, uh, and then another uh, several broadcasts coming up on Office Hours uh, on the the Heidelcast. You know, um, you know, I've got to, in fact, I've got to do one uh, either today or tomorrow, and uh, I, I just uh, I just released one, I guess, uh, this last Lord's Day, uh, talking about uh, the meaning of tattoos and <laughs> uh, and, and body piercing. So th- these are very different uh, shows that. <laughs> I don't think the seminary wants me talking under the auspices of the SEM about body piercing and tattoos. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's really interesting, um, you know, and I'm seeing this here on campus. You know, we have seminarians coming who, you know, uh, some of whom are relatively recent converts, and they come, you know, with body art you know, all tatted up. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm old enough now where, you know, when I think of tattoos, I think of, you know, sailors, Marines. Uh, truck drivers, you know, those are the guys that, uh, you know, when I was a kid, those are the guys you would expect to have a, a, a tattoo. And, you know, guy has a, you know, a little bit too much to drink and his buddies take him to a tattoo parlor and he gets an anchor or a mom or something or what have you. Well, obviously, th- there's a whole tattoo culture now. And I, I think it says something about one's view of humanity. And uh, so one of the things I'm trying to do is to challenge Christians to think through the implications of of what it means to and and to get Christians to ask themselves, why do people do this? And, and uh, you know, what's the significance? If Marshall McLuhan is right, and I think he is, that the, you know, the medium itself is the message, what's the message of drilling, you know, ink into your skin or, or drilling a piece of steel into your nose? What, what does that mean? And exactly. I found some interesting audio. So that was the most recent. And uh, I've got one coming up here on... Um, 
using some clips as sort of a jumping off point on uh, on evangelism, uh, some clips from uh, This American Life where we're going to be talking about uh, duplicitous forms of evangelism and uh, why Christians do that and how we ought to think about that. Hmm. Well, I suppose uh, Marshall McLuhan on tattoos brings a whole new dimension to his other book, The Medium is the Massage. <laughs> Exactly. So, so there's that, and you know, the Heidel blog is just something that's sort of taken off. Um, Again, it was I I started off just to have a place to think out loud and really uh, on a daily basis write a little exposition of the Heidelberg Catechism, which then I I hope to maybe gather up and and publish. And the whole thing's been completely derailed. I, I haven't done anything with the Catechism for months and months, really in terms of the exposition of the catechism, and it sort of turned into a place to talk about, um, and the subhead for the blog is recovering the Reformed Confession. So it's come to be a place where we can talk about what does it mean to be Reformed today, and and uh, how do we define Reformed, and and uh, kind of keep track of some of the developments that are happening in the in the uh, confessional and maybe more bro- uh, in the broader Reformed world. Yeah. Yeah, and, and um, I'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes. I won't. Uh, I won't uh, uh, try to list them all, but ex- other than heidelblog.wordpress.com and also wscal.edu, but we'll have links to them in the show notes for all who would like to see, as well as links to uh, Dr. Clark's various books that he has either authored or edited. And uh, there's so much stuff out there. We're really excited about what you're doing. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and you can visit us online at reformedforum.org as well. And you can see uh, everything Nick is up to at feedingonchrist.com. If that's not enough for you, like I said, go to the web. and We'll provide even more links for you. So thank you so much for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>